When you look at the debate around climate science, what do you want to say to the people who still say that climate change is not real? <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer to that. But if you think climate change isn't real, then you basically say that the laws of physics don't hold. And if that's what you want to say, then you can do that, I guess. But I don't think it's a very helpful position. And if you don't believe in physics and don't think that the laws of physics hold, then you better never board an airplane again or do any of the other things that we are doing that are based on our understanding of the laws of physics. Hi and welcome to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. In this podcast, you'll hear the world's leading climate scientists talk about their areas of expertise. And the person who will guide you through those talks, that's me, Peter Adestig. I'm a climate reporter at Svenska Dagbladet. Now, as I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast knows, many people have opinions about climate change. But opinions is one thing and facts another. And the idea with this podcast is to let the people actually know what's going on in the climate and what consequences that has to explain what they know. Basically, we want to listen to the scientists. In this first episode, we'll meet Dr. Frederike Otto, who is one of the leading researchers in the pretty new research field called Extreme Weather Attribution. And it's a field of research that has completely changed the discussion around climate change, not least in the public debate. Because until now, when we would talk about climate change, we mostly would do it in terms of a frightening future threat coming towards us. But now that picture is changing. Since researchers like Frederica Otto can actually start showing us the links between our emissions and the weather disasters that are happening already now, today. But before we get into some of the interesting research that Frederica Otto has conducted... We're going to let her explain what is actually this research field, extreme weather attribution. It is a part of climate science. And what we do is answer the question whether and to what extent climate change alters the likelihood and intensity of extreme weather events occurring. And not extreme weather events somewhere else, somewhere in the distant future, but the events that are happening here and now. A lot of our science is done on events while they are happening or very shortly after they are unfolding. Because today, when an extreme event happens, there is always the question, what's the role of climate change? And we are trying to answer that. And this is kind of changing everything about the discussion around these events. Because, you know, as long as I was a climate journalist, I always heard that we can't talk about the role of climate change in the weather that we experience now. Yeah, when I started to do climate science, that was exactly the same thing, that either you would say, well, we can't attribute individual weather events, or, well, climate change is happening, so of course every weather event that is happening has something to do with climate change. And the letter is trivially true, but it doesn't tell you anything about whether it was made more likely by climate change or less likely by climate change. And so we are now able to answer this question for... Not every extreme event in the world, but for an increasingly large number of events. 2020 has been a year full of extremes. We've seen fires in western US, extreme heat in Siberia, record lower Arctic sea levels and so forth. What is your reaction to how 2020 has been from a climate perspective? I think 2020 has shown us 
very drastically how vulnerable we are as a global society. And that is, of course, not just because of the weather events that have happened, but also because of the pandemic we are in. And that pandemic hinders us to respond to extreme events in the same way that we usually would be able to. So, for example, if there is a hurricane threatening a city, what you would normally do is you open safe public spaces like sports halls and so on. You can't do this right now because then you put too many people too close together and so they would be safe from the hurricane but get the pandemic. So I think this is very dramatically showing us what a complex risks and complex events are. And that is, I think, bringing home much more what climate change actually is. Climate change is not that we will have a completely different planet or climate change is often compared with the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs. But that's not what climate change is. Climate change alters, manifests by changing risks of extreme weather and also rising sea levels. And that means that the extreme event might have happened anyway, but because of climate change, it's more intense or it happened more frequently. And so our ability to deal with these kind of events is diminished. And it's also that those in each society who are most vulnerable are actually paying for the impact of climate change. So it's not us so much who are suffering from climate change because we usually have well-insulated houses or at least houses that are not getting too hot in heat waves and are not getting flooded. But it's those who have least money, who don't have insurance, who are paying the prices. And so what climate change primarily does is that it increases inequality. I met Frederike Otto at Oxford University, where she's been active since 2011 at ECI, Environmental Change Institute. She is a physicist and a philosopher with a PhD on the usefulness of climate models. And in 2014, she and some of her colleagues launched the World Weather Attribution Initiative, which in a groundbreaking way analyzes weather disasters almost while they occur or shortly thereafter. Now, their studies of heat waves, hurricanes and other weather disasters make headlines all over the world and have made Friedrich Otto one of the world's most talked about climate scientists right now. Last year, MIT Tech Review actually ranked her research area as one of the 10 most important technological breakthroughs of the year. How did you end up in this field and what was it that drove you into this groundbreaking field of climate research? So what got me into this field is the Russian heat wave. It happened in 2010. And the year later, there were two scientific articles that were published about this event. And one was having as the headline, climate change made this event five times more likely. And the other one was saying, as sort of the headline result, this event was mainly naturally in origin. And I was looking at this thinking, well, this can't be right. This sounds very much not compatible. And so I wanted to find out how the scientists came up with so different results and what actually was the role of climate change in the Russian heat wave. And I found that they were actually both right, but they asked very different questions. So the first one that had the answer, it was made five times more likely. The question they were actually asking was, how does climate change 
increase the likelihood of record-breaking heat waves. So it wasn't this particular heat waves, but just that a record is broken. And of course, if you have a trend in temperatures, so temperatures are going up, the likelihood that you hit a new record is relatively high, whereas the likelihood that you hit a low record is very low. That was how they came to their conclusion. And the other paper looked at more the anatomy of the event itself. So they were looking in very much detail of what other conditions were important for this event to develop. And so they looked into the fact that there was a relatively dry spring and what the role of the weather system itself was and found that in these factors, climate change was not playing a major role which is true, but for the actual temperatures itself, climate change was playing a big role. And so by reconciling these two studies, I got into the field of event attribution and thinking, well, this is actually a question that everyone asks. It's obviously not so straightforward to answer it, and it's really important what is actually the question that you ask in order for the answer to make any sense. And so from then, I really found that this was a very important question to ask and try to answer. And so two years later, we started discussing with colleagues that maybe it would be useful not only to do these kind of studies at the time scales that usually science works, which is there is something happening, then you sit down and get the data and analyze it, and then you write it all up, you send it to a scientific journal, and then six months later or so, you might get reviews from other scientists that have reviewed your paper, and then you get corrections to do, and then you implement it, and then you send it back to the journal. And if you're lucky, a year after you have first submitted your paper, it gets published. But of course, then no one outside of science speaks about the event anymore. And so in 2014, we started to discuss, well, wouldn't it be really helpful to do this faster for the types of events where we have already developed the methodologies and where we know what we are doing so that we can answer the question of the role of climate change? Well, we were very ambitious. We thought within the news cycle, I think when <laughs> so we then... 24 act- hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're just crunching the numbers, you can do that in 24 hours. But the more important part is to find out what is actually the exact question that you want to ask, what is the exact event that you want to attribute, and then, of course, also checking all the numbers and writing up what you have done that is not doable in 24 hours. So we have managed to do it within a week. And I think this is still extremely useful and it's better to do it right in a week rather than do it wrong in 24 hours. But this is still a controversial part about what you are doing. With the studies that you're conducting, you're skipping the peer review process, as it's called, for scientific publications, although your methods are peer reviewed. How has this been received in the scientific community? When we started very badly, Um, (laughs) I think it's fair to say, but we have made a point to make it as transparent as we possibly can. So when we do the rapid studies, we do everything in public. So every data set is publicly available. Every step that we have taken, we document and put that up on the website where we also publish the results so that every scientist or every other person who is inclined to do so can redo our results and can see if we've made a mistake and how we got to the numbers we get. And of course also, we don't do anything new in these studies that we haven't done before for a different event 
with a peer-reviewed study. So all the methodologies we use, all the models that we use, they have all been through peer review. And so there is an increasing number of people in the scientific community who actually are agreeing that this is the useful thing to do and are participating. So it's now not so difficult to find people to do the studies with us than it was when we started. And this then quickly grew into, uh, I would say, you know, at least from my perspective as a journalist, one of the most influential new steps in climate science. And it has attracted an enormous attention. Why do you think that it grew so quickly and became such a big thing? I think it's still actually a very small thing in terms of what is done in climate science. So it's a non-funded project. So no one is actually paid to do this. And that's why we only do the number of studies we do and not more. But I think it is answering a question that people have. What we have shown with this science when we started is that climate change is not something that happens sometime in the future to someone else, but it is actually happening here and now to all of us. It's happening in our backyards and it's pretty much doesn't matter where your backyard is. So with that, we actually bring the intellectual understanding that we all have to some degree about climate change together with the experience we have in our daily lives. And I think that is a very important way to understand what climate change means. Already now, the Earth is a bit more than one degree warmer than it was around 150 years ago, due to the human emissions of greenhouse gases. The past six years are the six warmest recorded globally, with 2020 and 2016 tied for the absolute warmest, around 1.2 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. Now, in the Paris Agreement that world leaders signed in 2015, it was agreed that the warming should be limited to as close to 1.5 degrees as possible by the year 2100. But as the record temperatures from the past years show, that is a tough goal. Right now, the world is actually on track for 1.5 degrees warming already in a couple of decades. And by end of century, the planet is expected to be around 3 degrees warmer. I want to dig a bit deeper into this concept that has been pushed forward so many times, both from client scientists and not least from the more skeptical side, that climate change and weather are two different things and that we cannot talk about that extreme weather events are actually affected by climate change. Now, this is the exact thing that you are researching. But what's your response to the people who stick to the old truth then? Well... It's definitely true that climate is not the same as weather, but that doesn't mean that climate doesn't influence weather. So what climate is, is ultimately average weather. But that also means that the weather events that are happening, extreme or not, they are the possible weather events within a frame or a range that is given by the climate. And if you change the climate, then of course this range of possible weather is changing. And so that's how climate change can affect weather in that it changes the likelihood of certain types of weather events to occur. And how important would you say that climate change is for how the weather works on the planet Earth? How big an influence is climate change in this? That is very much dependent on the type of weather. 
So there are basically two ways of how climate change affects weather. One is what, what we would call the thermodynamic effect or just the warming effect. So you have more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the atmosphere overall gets warmer. That means on a global average, you have a higher likelihood of heat waves, a lower likelihood of cold waves. And also a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor and that water needs to get out of the atmosphere as rainfall. So on, on a global average, you have also more, more rainfall. But then there is a second effect, and I, I like to call it the dynamic effect. Um, but it, it's uh, basically because we change the um, composition of the atmosphere, that affects the atmospheric circulation. So how weather systems develop, how they move, where they move. And this effect can be either in the same direction as the warming effect. So you have more extreme rainfall because of the warming, but you also get more low pressure systems. So you have even more rain than, than you would expect just from the warming alone. But they can also um, cancel each other out or the dynamics can win. So if you, um, if you just don't get low pressure systems anymore that, that are conducive to rainfall, then more or less doesn't matter what the warming effect does, it will not rain. And so you have actually um, even less rainfall or, or if the effects are of the same size, then, then it just cancel. they just cancel and, and so you don't see any change in the likelihood of weather events. And because the second effect is very different from region to region and also from season to season and affects different types of weather in a different way, we have to do these studies. Otherwise, well, we could just know from the global average what would happen. This sounds extremely complicated though. Well, that's why we can't calculate on the back of an envelope what climate change does to weather, but that's why we have to use climate models that do simulate the changes in the atmospheric circulation. And that is also why we can't answer the question for all types of events because there are some events that climate models can simulate in a reliable way, but there are others where we just don't have the right tools at the moment. Now to Australia, where they're facing those massive fires, already among the worst in that country's history, with more than 12 million acres scorched. And officials are warning the next few days will be even worse. This is what it looks like when you get half a year's worth of rain in less than a day. Entire neighborhoods practically submerged. Despite warnings of catastrophic flooding, many were caught in it anyway. All I heard was screaming and beating. And when I opened it, more water just rushed in. And they're like, you gotta get out, you gotta get out. We've seen the past few years, the extreme heat wave in Europe 2018, the hurricane called Harvey, the flooded huge parts of Texas 2017, the devastating fires in Australia. And each of these, you have been able to say, bear the mark of global warming, some of them in shocking numbers, actually. But there are huge differences as well between the different types of events that yes, you look at. Yeah. While it is different from region to region, it's very clear that for heat waves, climate change is an absolute game changer. And compared to what we see on heat waves, every other numbers or every other influence of climate change on extreme events is small. So how big an influence is it and what is it that you see? 
Well, maybe to start with the most drastic result from my own study. So we looked earlier this year on the heat wave in Siberia. We looked at two different aspects of that heat. So one that made lots of headlines was that in Rasyansk, um, the maximum daily temperatures were 38 degrees, which is extremely unusual so far north. But also the first six months of the year 2020 were extremely warm in basically all of Siberia this year. And so we also looked at this event, which of course is to call that an event, a six month long event, maybe stretch the definition of event a bit. But because it actually had huge impacts, the thawing of the permafrost during that time was massive. There were wildfires very far north in the Arctic. So this six-month event had huge impacts. And we found that this event would have been almost impossible to happen without human-induced climate change. I read somewhere that it was made 600 times more yeah. likely. It was made at least 600 times more likely. And the at least is really important because with events that are so extreme, so that you don't have much in the observational records that are anywhere close to the events that we have observed this year, it is very difficult to quantify exactly was this a one in a hundred year event in today's climate or was it a one in 50 year event in today's climate? Because if you don't really have observations that have any data that is comparable to the event you observe, you just get very much outside of the normal weather, and so you have to extrapolate. And so the range of the truth that is somewhere in there, if it was 600 times more likely or 8,000 times more likely, the truth is somewhere in there. But with the data that we have, we can't narrow it down, so we can't quantify it. And so what we do is we are being really conservative and say, okay, what is the minimum? So what is the smallest number of increase from climate change? So the lower bound, and that is the 600 times. So it has been made at least 600 times more likely. How did you react when you saw that number yourself? I think when you do a study like this, where you have these really big numbers, you think only about how can we communicate this in a way that actually makes sense. That is, on the one hand, true to the science, true to the available data that we have, but also bring across that this is really something very different. So this is a type of event that we would not have seen if it wasn't for climate change. Whereas with other events, like extreme rainfall events or so, they are events that do happen also in a world without climate change, but climate change has made them a bit more intense or a bit more likely. But with this Siberia heat wave, it's something that is really a completely different type of event that we wouldn't have observed otherwise. Another heat wave that was a game changer in the um, global discussion around climate change is the heat wave in Europe 2018. You also looked into that one. What yes. did you find there? This is a heat wave that has been studied a lot. And because there is never one way or one right way to define a heat wave, there are different numbers that are being published for the influence of climate change. Because what we did in our study, we were trying to define the heat wave in a way that is closest to what people actually experience and what causes the damages, that actually causes the damages. So 
what usually makes the headline is the maximum temperature when a record is broken. But if you only would have one day of extremely high temperatures, that wouldn't have that much impact actually on people. But what the big impact of heat waves is that it's the killer, that it really increases mortality of the vulnerable population, so elderly people primarily. But that's not the maximum temperature alone that does that, but it's sort of when heat waves last for three days or longer, and also when the minimum temperatures, so the nighttime temperatures, when they are high as well. And so we defined the heat wave that we looked at as the three-day average temperature, so the combination of minimum and maximum temperature. And we also looked at the scale of the city. So we looked at different cities in Europe, and we found that for this way of defining a heat wave at these very small locations, climate change made these heat waves at least five times more likely in most regions. It was the further south you go in Europe, the stronger the change in likelihood was. So in France, we had that it was made at least 10 times more likely, whereas further north, it was more five times more likely. But there are other studies that have looked at just average all the different heat waves that happened in 2018 over a big part of Europe together, so over a large geographical area. And when you do that, the influence of the day-to-day -day variability of the weather is smaller. So because you average some of this noise out, and so you isolate the climate change signal more. And so for these kind of study, you found that climate change made the heat wave 30 times or more likely. Heat waves also automatically brings us to another type of event, extreme fires. And uh, last winter, an area almost as big as England was burnt in Australia. And with horrible consequences, such as a billion animals was estimated to die. And in this case, the topic of climate change was also incredibly sensitive uh, in the political debate. Several people said that climate change had nothing to do with it, and even the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, downplayed the role of climate change. You conducted, though, a very extensive study on the Australian fires, and you found something different. Yes, we did. But of course it's true that wildfires are a very complex type of extreme weather. And I've already said that there are even several ways of defining a heat wave and what is the right way is really dependent on what you're vulnerable to, what is the right way for you. There is no one way to do that. And for wildfires, there are many more different factors that come into play that actually make a wildfire. So from the weather side alone, fire weather, so weather that is conducive to wildfires, is a combination of extreme temperatures, and low humidity, and also high wind speeds. But then, of course, it also plays a role whether there's fuel available, so just where does this fire weather occur, and how dry the fuel is, so therefore it's important whether there was a drought or not. And then, of course, there are also other aspects that are completely outside the natural system that have something to do with forest management and where people build villages and houses and so on. That, of course, has an important role for the damages that occur. And so what we have done in this study is we have looked only at the meteorological conditions, so the fire weather, so where climate change can have an influence on. And we used a fire weather index, so which is 
an index that combines these different aspects that are important, so the high temperatures, low humidity and the wind speeds, and found that for this index, climate change made this kind of fire weather conditions that happened in the Australian summer 2019-2020 at least 30% more likely. And then we also looked at which aspect of the fire weather that was mainly responsible for this increase in fire weather. And so we also looked at the heat separately and at the drought component separately. And we found that it was indeed primarily the extreme heat where climate change really changed the intensity and likelihood. But there was no change in the drought likelihood for this fire. I think a lot of people automatically think about the fires in Western US when they hear about the likelihood of fires and how climate change is changing it. What can you say there? We haven't published a study on the California fires. We have looked at some data. And what we see there as well is that the heat component, there also climate change is increasing the likelihood and the intensity very much. There is no obvious signal in the drought so the story of the role of climate change in these fires is probably very similar to the one that we've seen in Australia. But I think it's important to say that, yes, climate change is making these fires more likely and more intense. But it's also important to highlight these fires are not happening just because of climate change. Both California and Australia are ecosystems that naturally have fires. And so it is also important to look at the role of management and warehouses are built in order to deal with these fires. The list of different types of extreme weather that Frederica Otto and her colleagues look at is quite long. They look at heat waves, extreme droughts and fires, but also hurricanes, storms and floods and even cold spells, where they look at how extremely cold periods have become less common because of the human emissions of greenhouse gases. The studies themselves are actually carried out in a fairly straightforward manner. First, you collect weather data from the event. Then you look at how common that type of event has been historically. And third, you run climate models. First, with the current level of greenhouse gases. And second, in a fictional world without human emissions of greenhouse gases. And you do this hundreds of times. So you can compare how likely a particular event is in the two different worlds. So now we've been talking about extreme heat waves and hurricanes and wildfires and all of these things on different levels becoming worse already today because of climate change. This, of course, has huge implications as well when it comes to policies. And what do you see for yourself? What are the implications of your research? I think one of the implications that I'm very happy about is that it actually leads to heat waves being taken more seriously, also here in Europe. And I think this is partly due to the media always talking about heat waves with pictures from people on the beach being happy. The fact that, for example, if you look at the mortality data in France, you see a big spike in 2020, that's COVID, and you see a big spike in 2003 and that was the 2003 heat wave. So heat waves are killers. And given that we have already one degree of global warming, heat waves have really changed in their likelihood and their intensity in Europe. And now most of the national governments in Europe have heat wave action plans so that when heat waves are forecast, that people are warned about 
heat waves, that public buildings are being opened so people can go cool down, there's water available and things like that. So I think that is a very positive effect of it. And I think that's one of the main drivers for me for doing this kind of research is to understand what the impacts of climate change today are and that the public debate about climate change is always either doom or denial. But of course, the reality is that, yes, climate change is happening and it's happening here and now. It has very bad consequences, but it's also not everything bad happening in the world is because of climate change. So I think the truth is never black and white. And I think I try, at least with our studies, to not always, and I think we need to get better at that, to also look at the influence of vulnerability and exposure. So who is in harm's way in terms of what actually then leads to a disaster. And uh, how vulnerable are we today? How ready are we today for this increase extreme weather events that we are seeing? Not very ready at all. And I think this is the really important aspect of results like the ones for the bushfires in Australia, where we find that climate change made these at least 30% more likely. So 30% more likely is a small number compared to the orders of magnitude more likely you have with the Siberian heat wave. But especially in a country like Australia, where weather has always been extreme, we are only adapted to a very small range of possible weather. And even if we have small changes to this range, we are very quickly going to the edge or maybe above the edge of what we are able to deal with. So if you have a fire like this again next year, then the people who are able to fight fires, the firefighters, they might just not be able to do as much as they did again one year later. And then there will be even less ability to put fires out. And I think this is the really important thing, that the actual numbers are probably not very meaningful if you just focus on these numbers, if you don't put them into the context of what are we actually able to deal with. Frederica Otto's research also has another perhaps unexpected effect. Perhaps you've read about in recent years how more and more climate-related lawsuits have been filed in courts all around the world. In the Netherlands, for example, the government was forced to increase its climate ambitions after being sued by the organization Urgenda. And in the UK, the planned expansion of Heathrow Airport was actually stopped by the country's highest court. But it's not only governments are being sued. Fossil fuel companies have also become targets for lawsuits. In the US, for instance, several counties in California have joined forces and sued a group of fossil fuel companies for the cost of adapting to higher sea levels. Another famous case is when ExxonMobil was sued for misleading the public on the climate issue. And in some of these lawsuits, Frederike Otto's and her colleagues' research can actually come to play a crucial role. You've actually come to play a part in legal battle in courtrooms. Can you explain how is your research used and what are the implications there? There are part of my research is showing is that we already have today losses and damages that are clearly attributable to human induced climate change. And there are, of course, very different responsibilities in terms of who are actually these humans that have caused these emissions. And you can look at it on a nation state 
basis, in which case the UK, as being the first country to emit greenhouse gases, has historically been one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases and so carries a big responsibility in terms of the damages that are occurring today. But of course, there's also the role of the so-called carbon majors. So the big companies whose business model is digging up coal, oil and gas and selling it and making money out of it. There are only about 90 companies overall that basically make up all the emissions in the atmosphere. And the biggest one there is Exxon, but there are other big ones and the names will be familiar. And we will not solve climate change. We will not stop emitting greenhouse gases if these companies do not change their business model. And of course, at the moment, it's not illegal to emit CO2. It's not illegal to sell coal, oil and gas. There is no incentive to change the business model. Even with the Paris Agreement, there has not been any legislation put in place that actually really leads to the global economic system that we live on to change to one that is not built on burning fossil fuels. And so one way to maybe speed up this process so that these companies do change their business model is to sue them in court for the damages that have occurred from the emissions that they have put into the atmosphere. And you will say, well, it's not illegal. That is true. But because especially the fossil fuel industry in the US has put a lot of time and effort and money into disinforming the public about climate change, that carries some extra responsibility. And so the idea would be to use damages that are occurring because of climate change that can be directly attributed to the emissions of one of these carbon majors to actually make them liable for these damages and so force them to change their business model or at least pay compensation. And then hopefully that will have influence on the rest of the industry so that it speeds up the process of changing our economy to one that doesn't rely on burning fossil fuels. But this hasn't happened yet, though, right? Nobody has sued and won against a company saying that you caused, for instance, the extreme heat in Siberia or... No one has sued and won yet. That is true. There is currently an ongoing case in Germany where a Peruvian farmer is suing RWE for the damages occurring because of glacier melt in the area of the city where he lives in. The case is still ongoing, so the jury is open there, and there it's actually at a state where now the scientific evidence is looked at. There have been quite a few other cases that have been brought to court that haven't made it very far. All of them failed because of legal issues. So this has never really been tried then? It has never really been tried. And this is partly because the science is only relatively new. It's partly because there is at the moment with these cases that are being brought, there is a mismatch between the scientific evidence that has actually been used in the cases and what we can do in terms of the science. So quite often cases are brought in areas of the world where the data is very poor. So it's very hard to actually have robust scientific evidence just because we don't have the right observational data to actually say with confidence this is climate change or not. In contrast to other, there are lots of cases where you have a very clear and robust climate change signal, but they are not the ones 
that are disputed in court at the moment. But part of the work that I'm doing at the moment is to bring these two things together. So to work with lawyers. Um, the courts are only lawyers, judges are part of society. And so, of course, the scientific understanding of the wider public is sort of representative of the scientific understanding of judges. And I think if there is a new science, it just takes some time for that to be accepted general knowledge about causality before it actually will lead to a successful court decision. Because, of course, as a judge, you do not want to make a mistake with this, because when such a case will be successful, that will have huge implications. Do you expect it to happen? Yes. We've been talking about the extreme weather that we see today already and how climate change is influencing that. But climate change has not stopped. Looking forward, what do you see? How worried are you about the future and what's to come? I think the future is very much in our hands. So we are not powerless to shape the future in, in a way that we can actually deal with this. All of the extreme events that we have looked at, and of course you can do the same studies that we do with the past, with the world that might have been, we can do exactly the same thing also for the future. So today we live in a one degree world, how would the likelihood of this event change in a two degree world? And we do these studies as well. And so we will have more extreme events and they will be more intense than today. And some of the summers that we've had in recent years here in Europe will be actually relatively cool summers in a two degree warmer world. So we need to adapt to climate change. But it's not too late to start really honestly and with teeth changing our economies so that we don't burn fossil fuels anymore. And it is possible also to adapt to not all of the climate change events, of course, but we are also not adapted to a lot of the events that are happening today. So there is a lot of work to be done to increase equality, but we as a global society have also done a lot of things that seem quite impossible and we have done them. And a lot of people who talk about climate change, who started to talk about it, I don't know, in the 70s or 80s, start about overpopulation. And they always talk about that the number of people in the world is increasing and this is a huge problem. And this is actually not true anymore because through a lot of development work, education and so on, the rate of increase in population is decreasing. So for something that seemed like an absolute impossible problem, we have actually managed to turn around and to change the trajectory we are on. So there is no inherent reason in the climate problem that we couldn't do it. It just needs a lot of political will. Thank you very much, Dr. Federica Otto, for coming here and talking to us. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from Svenska Dagbladet. Producer Clara Wallin, editor Adam Svanell, project manager Gunvor Frikorn. My name is Peter Alestig and in our next episode, Climate Thinkers meet the legendary climatologist John Shelnova, who talks about one of the maybe scariest aspects of climate change, tipping points in the climate system. What happens if the Amazon collapses or if the Gulf Stream starts to slow down? Until then, thank you for listening.